Hello and welcome to the Better Human podcast. My name is Adam Wagner and I'm a barrister specialising in human rights. This podcast is the second in a mini-series co-hosted with Susie Allegre, International Human Rights Barrister, Associate at Bounty Street Chambers and a Research Fellow at the University of Roehampton. And we'll be looking at overlooked aspects of freedom of expression in the online space. We are really grateful to the Office of the OSCE Representative on Freedom of the Media for a grant through their Spotlight on AI and Freedom of Expression project, which supports this mini-series. And today, our special guest is the Maven of Persuasion. That's really um, what she goes by, Dr. Emma L. Bryant. Um, She's an academic, author, journalist, and consultant. She's an associate researcher at Bard College. She has an extensive background as a professor in information operations, propaganda, and human rights. And she's one of the key researchers who uncovered the Cambridge Analytica scandal in 2018. If you want to support this podcast and make it sustainable, please go to www.betterhumanpodcast.com. The Better Human Podcast is supported by Goldsmiths Law and their pioneering LLB undergraduate program taught in London. If you are interested in studying law and particularly human rights at university, applications to Goldsmiths LLB Law with Criminal Justice and Human Rights and LLB Law with Politics and Human Rights are now open. To learn more, please visit gold.act.uk forward slash law where you can also apply. Thank you so much for um, coming on, Emma, um, and for joining us. And, and, and thanks so much, Susie, for co-hosting um, in what should be a really interesting mini-series. So should we start with a question? So, Emma, I mean, the first question is, what is propaganda? You know, what, how exactly do you define propaganda and how is it different from straightforward news or public information, as we might think about it? Well... Propaganda is an essentially contested concept. So what that means is we academics argue all day and disagree about what it, what, what it actually even is. So um, there are some people who define propaganda in a very broad way um, as simply, you know, the efforts to influence um, and persuade uh, an audience. So that could be a group or um, individuals or an entire population. Uh, to, you know, ag- agree with a particular perspective uh, that you are trying to promote. Um, and there are others who might define it in more pejorative ways as a very negative activity that is designed to favor the interests of the propagandist um, and to the detriment of the audience. Um, personally, I see it as a, um, as a strategic activity of organizing different forms of communication. So that could be symbols, videos, it could be media, it could be texts, um, and um, it could be persuasive or it could be factual. Um, and essentially it's, it's a deliberate activity that is designed to influence uh, behaviors, emotions, ideas, um, towards the interests of the person who is um, seeking to to influence. Uh, so that might not necessarily be something that is negative to the audience. 
from my perspective. So, for instance, um, public information films of the past persuaded us that we should wear seatbelts and, you know, that we should support the war against Hitler and so on. And these are not necessarily things that you would necessarily say are, you know, wrong or, or um, argue uh, are nefarious. Um, so, personally, I, from my perspective, propaganda can be used for good or ill. Um, it can be deceptive or it can be truthful. And how we do propaganda um, or, you know, organize these communications and the ways in which we advance um, our, our perspectives and our, you know, interests in society can be done, you know, in all sorts of ethical or unethical ways. And, you know, I mean, um, we have Article 19 protections for, you know, the ability to put our ideas out there. We need to be able to promote our ideas and perspectives. If we want to stop climate change, and we, if we want to, you know, tackle all sorts of the world's problems, we have to get people to, to change their behaviors and to change their ideas. So it's not necessarily a nefarious activity. Um, and it, it, it's something that at the moment has risen to the fore for all sorts of reasons because of technological changes, which might influence how you know, um, deceptive or how um, organized and, and um, monopolistic the activities of propaganda are in a modern age. It's really a kind of question as well about the context and where you draw the lines between what's legitimate influence and what is sort of manipulative. And also, exactly. I suppose, what's positive and negative that you're saying. And, and you know, we, we all live and, and work in an environment where we might want to persuade people that what we think is right. You know, obviously, Adam and I both worked as human rights advocates. So, you know, we would uh, want whatever we're saying to persuade people and to be the right side of that legitimate influence. It's also something that, you know, is very much um, dependent on point of view. So sometimes propaganda is also conceived as what the enemy does. So what we do is, is advocacy and, and maybe PR or, you know, and, and we use these kind of euphemistic terms to describe what we do, uh, or it's strategic communication. <laughs> um, so, uh, but, but we, you know, deem the other to be engaged in propaganda and use that as a pejorative label sometimes. Uh, so, you know, personally, I use the term propaganda in a more, new, more neutral way because I think it's more helpful to then consider, like you say, the circumstances and context and intentions of the propagandist. And so I, I think probably people, when they hear the word propaganda, will think most obviously of 20th century propaganda, you know, Nazi propaganda, Soviet propaganda, um, you know, like you say, the... Um, posters from the Second World War um, encouraging people to, um, you know, dig, dig for Blighty or, or whatever the, um, the, the, <laughs> the terms are. What do you think 21st century propaganda is? Is it different to 20th century propaganda? I would say definitely. It's very different. Um, what hasn't changed is, um, you know, perhaps the content. People have always lied. People have always you know, used racist imagery or, you know, othering. And so, so the nature of the 
the lie, if you like, or the, um, uh, the, the sort of ideological content um, hasn't really changed. It's more about how we, how we do this. So how we organize and, and uh, distribute and analyze and the ability to uh, combine mass surveillance technologies with propaganda has completely transformed in the last 15 years. So if you think about the Stasi in, you know, uh, the Cold War and how they were um, targeting groups in East Germany, um, in East Berlin, they, they would, you know, go into people's apartments and put wires in the walls and the doors and, and use this for spying. And then uh, they would essentially be... Um, uh, utilizing all this to pro profile people and produce, you know, um, databases. Uh, and now, it not only is it not necessarily just the um, the state that is compiling information about us; it's actually, um, you know, something that is being done commercially and sold to everyone <laughs> uh, for commercial use to be able to have access to this deeply personal information that we all hold in our devices. Our phones have become essentially like spyware. Um, they record everything that we're doing. We give consent to this because it doesn't seem like somebody putting wires in our walls like that uh, you know find very disturbing in a totalitarian context however it is quite totalitarian in the sense that it is hoovering up all of our data all the time and utilizing that for you know uh, the use of persuasion and 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 analysis um, based on our personalities our behaviors and activities um, to, to target messaging. And in the 21st century, I mean, the, the kind of examples that we've given from the 20th century are very much state-driven. But yeah. what are the main sources of propaganda in this new 21st century model that you've described, which obviously involves the private sector as well as potentially states, both hoovering up this data and then using it for targeted messaging? Yes, and I think it's really important to point out that actually, although, um, you know, we now kind of feel that commercial uh, surveillance, essentially, if you want to call it that, um, is less scary. Um, we forget that all of that can be bought by the state too, you know, and utilized in the same way. So actually what's happened is an expansion. The state still has access to all this data, but now we also have it available to commercial companies for use. And they can use it for political campaigns, they're using it for uh, commercial campaigns, which might sound innocuous because it could be selling you dog food and maybe you want dog food. <laughs> but it might also be advancing the uh, powerful interests of oil companies, for instance, and destroying our environment. And, you know, the issue is that um, we don't actually know how a lot of this data is being used. And it's very opaque. Uh, we have a hidden system of, you know, data analysis going on. We don't know how much data they have on us. Until we ask under the GDPR, we don't know. Um, and the problem is that um, these companies are using this data in all sorts of ways that we don't really understand. Um, and it's very difficult to think five steps ahead to how 
these companies are going to be using it, particularly as there are, you know, um, governments who are also utilizing it. And we, we also don't know how they're treating our data. An outsourcing of the propaganda ecosystem, if you like. And one of the problems, I would say, in the last 15 years is more about the normalization of it. The fact that we've become okay with this. Um, and we feel that it's somehow inevitable for our lives um, because we feel that we, you know, we need to be socially networked and we have to um, give permissions for all of these things to function in society now. And there is actually, you know, in, in the Cold War, people, I think, would have kicked up more of a stink. But it's happened so gradually that we've become very, very used to this. And I think that's deeply problematic. Okay, we may not be living in, you know, under the Stasi in, in Eastern Berlin. However, we should still be very worried. And there are totalitarian elements to how modern societies are being governed. I mean, I suppose that the things that people are not necessarily worried about is being sold lawnmowers. Although the weird thing is... <laughs> You always seem to be shown the lawnmowers after you've just bought a lawnmower. It's not, it doesn't seem particularly sophisticated. <laughs> it's sort of, it, surely once you've bought the lawnmower, that's the last thing you are going to be wanting. But I mean, the, the political advertising, um, which is, you know, very close to the Soviet Nazi propaganda type, you know, the, the, in terms of the form, the posters, mm. like the stuff you, the memes you see about, politician you know and particularly the the hot the the cruder stuff that you see you know over brexit or trump or, or whatever um although maybe i'm just politically biased that seems to be stuff that the people are very worried about and and i suppose that the crystallization was in the cambridge analytica scandal um yeah. can, can you just explain how that fits into the wider picture and and why you know give us a quick pricey of, of what happened and why it was a worrying well, I, I think this is particularly worrying because I think this actually, and it's a great example of why we should care about this um, and not be thinking, oh, well, they're just trying to sell us lawnmowers and that's fine. I don't really care about that. Um, and they don't necessarily do it effectively, so it doesn't matter. Actually, it does matter. Um, the issue is, like, with, with Cambridge Analytica, um, the type of, of use is important. And the, you know, Facebook data harvesting and all this kind of thing um, matters because um, it can be used in very different ways. The, the academics who analyzed the Cambridge Analytica methodology after the revelations were looking at whether Ocean, this particular personality test, uh, was useful for advancing messages in general. And in general, it didn't seem to particularly add to our ability to target a sales um, ad, you know, at selling someone a lawnmower or gym membership or anything like that, Coca-Cola or something like this. It, it actually didn't really advance our ability to um, sell products. However, one thing that Cambridge Analytica did find it effective at was advancing um, hate and fear-driven messaging and activating communities that were um, susceptible to neuroticism, so um, were more 
more likely to respond to anxiety and depression and things like this. And these kinds of communities, um, this personality type, they experimented extensively on what kind of messaging uh, to target them with in order to get them to most engage. Now, during a, a year where we've had unbelievable levels of mental health crises and, um, you know, violence on the streets in the United States, we've seen, you know, horrifying conspiracy theories being circulated en masse. The knowledge that while it may not be good for selling dog food or lawnmowers, this particular methodology is really effective at activating people who are already prone to fear is a really important uh, distinction. And why we, we can't just say, well, you know, actually, um, these things don't necessarily sell me a lawnmower, so therefore they don't matter, <laughs> you know? Different tools can be used differently for different purposes. And we need to understand that actually we don't necessarily know all the uses that this data can be put to and, you know, the impact it might have. We don't necessarily know the impact of using these particular methodologies on people with mental health conditions, for instance. There are lists of data out there about what uh, what mental health conditions people have that can be bought and sold on the internet. This is really disturbing. Um, people self-declare their mental health conditions and things like that. There has to be, you know, very strict laws that actually protect people from having information like this used in campaigns. Now, there are laws surrounding health data but I, do, I would not say they are sufficient to actually protect people at this time, particularly in the United States, where this is being circulated uh, on the internet, very easily uh, available data. Um, so I, I think that the ways in which, um, you know, the United States system operates at the moment without a regulator really is very, you know, troubling because I, uh, Americans don't really have anything uh, to actually um, govern what's, what's happening in this context. It's only when a massive breach occurs and it becomes aware of, to the authorities that anything is done about it. The Better Human podcast is supported by your contributions. If you find it useful and interesting, I would really appreciate if you consider giving just $3 a month, that's just over £2, via our Patreon, that's patreon.com forward slash betterhuman. And if a couple of hundred people do that, then that will make the podcast sustainable and I can carry on interviewing interesting guests about fascinating human rights subjects. I think it's really interesting that you raise this mental health point um, because in last year, Privacy International issued a report called Your Mental Health for Sale, uh, demonstrating how mental health websites in the UK, Germany and France were actually selling on the data of people visiting the websites to companies that potentially then use it for targeted advertising. And it's not very clear exactly what kind of targeted advertising 
that is. And I think it's a very interesting point you raise. And, and one of the important things about the right to freedom of expression is that it's so intimately related with the right to form and hold opinions and also the right uh, to receive and impart information. But that second part, the sort of rights of the receiver, if you like, have been very, very underexplored um, in the response to these kind of things. And so I was really just interested in your thoughts about how propaganda affects our right to freely form and hold opinions or our right to receive information that's kind of relevant and the kind of information that we actually want to receive, if you like, and that we can rely sure. on. And, you know, the, the right to free speech, um, freedom of opinion is obviously still very important. Just because I research propaganda, it doesn't mean that I think that the internet needs to be completely censored and getting rid of extreme views. So I, I think one of the problems is actually more that um, the this particular surveillance infrastructure that has been created for advancing propaganda um, essentially allows certain interests to dominate. And it's about the problematic artificial domination of views, which then suppress others' freedom of uh, expression. So, well, I, that's, I mean, what I, I suppose what I'm asking is, is more about oh. my right to freedom of opinion related to the information that I'm getting from the internet. So on the receiving end rather than on the delivering end, oh, how you think the propaganda affects our ability to actually freely form our own opinions, if you like, rather than the ability of someone to express their opinion through the internet. Sure. Well, I, I think the problem is that they, these monopolies do exist and we are trying as consumers of, of information uh, to... Um, exist in a society where we are limited in the range of what we're experiencing online but the entire internet is is making us feel that we have access to all of the information um that said i think there was a survey done uh, by oxford internet institute um where they found that globally around the world um, over half of individuals feel that um, disinformation is a major problem. So I think there is awareness, um, but it's more that I think that people's ability to, to really know what is disinformation and what isn't is, you know, has been very badly affected in the last sort of 20 years. Um, you, and you have, if you look at the United States, for instance, this kind of, polling can be misleading because also all, all you know, the um, Trump supporters are also feeling that there's disinformation out there. But what they highlight as disinformation may not be disinformation. Um, and it, the problem is that it's become very hard to judge. People feel a lot of distrust of their environment. And I would also say that, that governments are not responding very well in tackling this problem. Um, because part, partly because they're doing it again in a more dom dominative way and individuals um, struggle to really tell the difference and are not really being shown why they need to trust one source rather than another. Do you think um, there's a way going forward, practical way, that we can protect our 
data and our data rights. Um, and I, 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 one thing that I'd, I'd seen in the news recently is there's this spat between Apple and Facebook over, over Apple's um, Apple One to, as I understand it, have a have automatic opt outs so rather than an automatic opt in, and Facebook are obviously going bananas about that. But I just I, I want I'm interested in that question, um, but also more generally, you know, what what is the what is the potential answer here to making our data more secure and you know making use of it more um, limited? Well, personally, um, I, I would say definitely, you know, um, that's an important point. You know, we need to be um, opting in rather than, you know, opting out because obviously we, you know, it's the default um, is always designed to get us to share more data. And a lot of the discourse around this has oriented around consent and making sure have consent in the United States they still don't even consent necessarily to to data being taken so there are big problems in the US compared to the UK where we do have GDPR but even the GDPR model doesn't really protect us in the sense of um, uh, consent not being really enough Um, what we have is a system where you know people still are having to Uh, just tick a box and people don't really read all of these terms and conditions and things like that and so there are you know issues of well actually you you you're never going to do this if you're having a very very long busy day if you're you know um, not necessarily up on privacy and digital literacy and let's face it not everyone is going to become uh, brilliant at digital literacy. Some people are elderly. Some people, you know, sh- we should be able to navigate the internet safely without having to anticipate two, two or three steps ahead on what somebody like Alexander Nix might do with our data next. So um, uses like the Cambridge Analytica example where, where data was used for voter suppression, for instance, Um, need some kind of infrastructure that also doesn't just look at at the platforms like Facebook, making sure they um, are responsible, but also looks at these firms that exist, uh, subterranean (laughs) firms uh, that are gathering data to perform, to to essentially put together lists um, that they then analyze, that they then... uh, upload to date to, to Facebook in order to target uh, audiences. You know, none of this is really being governed properly. The influence industry of all these strategic communication firms um, are not really regulated in the same way that um, uh, other industries that are comparable are, especially in the United States. And you can get away with doing things like voter suppression because you're doing the legwork. You're then just uploading a list to Facebook. And Facebook doesn't know how that list has been put together. So it's, there are problems with the focus purely on platforms and not considering how to regulate the influence industry companies uh, that are engaging uh, in campaigns and so on. Um, at the moment, we're not really dealing with that. We're focusing solely on the platforms that they uh, engage with. And that is problematic in my view. I think we should uh, be considering these things very separately. 
Thank you so much, Emma. That's um, was just a really fascinating discussion. Um, really appreciate you taking the time. And You're welcome. Thank you for inviting me on. So thank you very much to my co-host, Susie Allegre, to the OSCE representative on freedom of, of the media for the grant through which this mini-series has become possible. And thank you to our guest, the maven of persuasion, Dr. Emma L. Bryant. The Better Human podcast is supported by Goldsmiths Law and their pioneering LLB undergraduate programme taught in London. If you're interested in studying law and particularly human rights, you can go to gold.act.uk forward slash law and you can find out about Goldsmiths LLB in law with criminal justice and human rights and the LLB law with politics and human rights. Applications are now open. If you want to support this podcast and find supporting materials, go to www.betterhumanpodcast.com. My name is Adam Wagner. This is the Better Human Podcast. Goodbye.